Welcome to Prairie Design Lab from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. We are a podcast focused on innovation in architecture and design from a prairie perspective. My name is Terry McLeod. Today, our focus is very much on the design part of Prairie Design Lab. That's because my guest is former Winnipegger Alan Chachanov, who now lives and works in New York City. He's the chair and co-founder of the Masters of Fine Arts in the Products of Design program at New York's School of Visual Arts. And he's also a partner and editor-at-large at Core 77. And he joins us via Zoom from New York City. Hello, Alan. Hello, this is um, perfect because very few people can pronounce my last name. Um, <laughs> so this is not only an enormous honor, but like a really strong start for me. It made me feel great. Thank you, Terry. There are lots of great Chachanovs in Winnipeg, as you know. I'm very proud of that. Now, Alan, you aren't an architect, but you're totally focused on design. But your definition of design is exceedingly broad. <laughs> what constitutes design for you? That's a double-edged sword there, even with this master's program that I founded. You know, we teach every flavor of design, you know, as a generalist, like, you know, where is the focus? Where is the expertise? Maybe we can touch back on that. You know, I define design as a kind of like an intentional pursuit. I love artists, actually. It's a bit of an open secret that if you're an artist and you apply to our program, you have a pretty high chance of getting in. You know, artists break rules. It's like built in. You, you really have to like, you know, encourage or maybe even train designers to break rules the way artists artists do. But kind of breakdown is revolves around an intentionality that you have a goal. You know, people talk about user-centeredness or human-centered design. Obviously, we need to move to planet-centered design right now. There is a kind of goal involved that's different in design. And there's a different kind of scale involved in design. And that does touch back to your notion of architecture, which many people consider to be entirely about scale and the built environment, you know, at an urban level scale for other kinds of design is really about reach and how many people are going to be, you know, in some sense affected, hopefully ennobled and enriched by your work. What happens in your Masters of Fine Arts in the Products of Design program? What do you define as products of design? I love this question because it actually has kind of a happy ending. About 11 years ago, SVA had approached me about creating a master's in industrial design at the time. And frankly, it's really crowded field. There's a lot of industrial design programs, great ones. Um, I went to one at Pratt in 1986 and 87. And also we don't really need like another industrial design program. I've said many times that, you know, industrial design is like part of the problem. You know, we can't keep making things the way that we're making them. So we can't keep teaching them people the way that we've been teaching them. But I'm very interested in the broader aspects of design. And so I was intrigued by this notion. As it came together, you know, we needed a name for this thing. We're going to teach lots of different flavors, interaction design, social innovation design, design and justice, public policy design, and yes, you know, industrial design, service design, systems, mapping, design research, you know, really all of it. But we needed a name and really couldn't come up with one. And time was running out. I was working with this amazing branding company in San Francisco called Tomorrow Partners, and they needed something to work with. And one of my colleagues and, and faculty, Andrew Schloss, had said, well, what about products of design? And, you know, I joked that it sounded like almost like a superhero, like products of design. But we were out of time. And it, frankly, you know, it was better than anything that we had had on this list of 140 different names. 
And this branding company did something really remarkable. Um, they turned it into a system, as most great graphic design and branding people will do. So it was, you know, products of serendipity, products of effort, products of caffeine, um, products of service, and products of interaction, etc. At that point, I really fell in love with the idea. I say that it's a happy ending because somewhere along the line, probably three or four years ago, uh, interaction designers started calling themselves product designers. For us in the industrial design field in the background, my original training is in industrial design. Uh, nobody understood what that meant. Say I'm an industrial designer and they'd say, well, do you design machines? And you're like, no, design actual like products. And they would say, well, do you mean the packaging? And be like, well, sometimes, you know, that's fun, but no, the actual thing. And they would never understand what you were talking about. When you kind of said, well, listen, for everything in the world, you point to all the artifacts in your room. There's, there's kind of a drawing for like everything that is manufactured. Like somebody decided this and it's like a light goes off, like a revelation that there's, again, this intentionality to the built environment um, at a product level. And because this was a, a very sort of persistent conversation with anyone who was a practicing industrial designer or d industrial design student, the shorthand was, I'm a product designer. I'm not sure that people understood that any better than I'm an industrial designer, um, but it was a little closer at least to having a conversation. So when interaction designers started calling themselves digital product designers about four, three or four years ago, and now product designers for short, if you met someone at a party and they told you they were a product designer, your logical answer would be something like Twitter, Instagram, you know, Spotify. And they'd be like, no, you know, I'm a Google, can't talk about what I'm doing forever. And so it's a little bit of a happy accident that product design has actually become pretty ubiquitous for, in some sense, like all kinds of design, which is wonderful for us because we want to attract all different kinds of practitioners I guess the last thing I would say about this is I did a lot of consulting work with Herman Miller quite a while ago, probably 15 years ago, and people talked about work product. It was actually called knowledge work, sort of what we do on computers, you know, pushing emails around, maybe a dignified name for it, knowledge work, that the output of knowledge workers was the work product. And so the word product is not a very pretty or romantic word, but it's pretty serviceable and ubiquitous. So we teach every kind of design and we want every kind of applicant. So I think it served us well. It turned out, I think, to be a pretty good name in the end, maybe more future proof than we had even hoped. You have a great deal to say about design, but again, <laughs> your definition of design includes many um, unconventional topics, such as the way we gather in meetings. You articulated that in an essay titled, Change Everything You Hate About Meetings with This One Single Word. Now, what do meetings have to do with design? Ah, such a good question. I'm not sure I've ever been, been asked this before. So I will admit that that title of that essay is very link-baity. It's intentionally written in the form of something that you would click on. I actually got some criticism about that in a comment, and I'm like, yes, that was actually by design. And so maybe I'll start there, that... Everything can be viewed through the lens of systems and through design. So a meeting is obviously um, a system. A meeting is also a problem, and designers love solving problems. That essay offers a kind of solution to meetings. Pretty quick essay. I would, I would love you to link to it in the show notes. But its biggest argument is that anything called a meeting it's a bad idea right from the start. It means you're going to be talking about stuff. And mostly you're going to be trying to decide to agree, right? Like a lot of meetings are deciding to agree. Um, and nothing actually sort of happens. And there are some people who enjoy meetings, but most people disparage them. And, and I think rightly so. 
And so one of the ideas in that essay is to actually reframe what a meeting is by renaming it. And this is in, in a real sense, a kind of design solution. And so what we offer there is that you don't call it a meeting, you call it a review. So for instance, if you had a review at four o'clock this afternoon, you'd probably look and feel pretty silly coming to something called a review empty-handed, right? So you'd probably have to do something before. If you have a meeting at three o'clock or four o'clock, you're going to do no preparation. You're either going to be dreading it or I don't know, maybe excited for it if you don't want to like do anything and sit around talking about, you know, what we might do. And so this is a, a great example of design and innovation where we are uh, and again, designers love this term to reframe, reframe the, the problem or the problem space. The problem is meetings and they are a problem. One of the solutions is not to have better meetings, um, although I have some suggestions for that. You know, one of the great ways of doing it is to actually call it something else um, and to call it something that comes with baggage and expectation that in this case is very positive, right? You could come prepared to a meeting with some suggestions or some prototypes or a sketch or a mind map or a list of competitors or Googling something that is opposite to your point of view to help focus up your own point of view. Uh, you don't walk in empty handed. Uh, it's an article I'm really proud of, but it is a great example of how everything um, is potentially a design problem. Uh, again, that word is problematic, a design opportunity. And in that one, one of the offerings is to intervene or create a design intervention in the form of language, of change language. You and I are talking on Zoom, right? And mm -hmm. you've been speaking about Zoom and its impact in an article published in Fast Company magazine in the middle of July. You talked about the challenges of hybrid learning and teaching during COVID via Zoom and live in classrooms. And it's happening virtually everywhere. Teachers are trying to teach, as you put it, both Zoomies and Roomies mm -hmm. simultaneously. But your research has cast some doubt on the effectiveness of this hybrid model. What did your research tell you? Many people around the world um, are very scared about um, education in a pandemic world. And we are not in a post-pandemic world by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, in some parts of the world, like we have vaccines and that's wonderful. But most of the world is nowhere close to post-pandemic. So that's sort of the first you know, thing I think that really needs to be said. Um, educators are very nervous about this because we understand that distance learning you know, has some advantages, but it also has lots of compromises. And in the design business, you know, we use the studio method where you're actually making stuff around other people and like, oh, how'd you do that? Can you show me? All of that um, is largely missing when I did this research last spring, the consequence was that I was worried that we would be hybrid in the fall, that we'd be able to have some students in the classroom, but that lots of students wouldn't either make it here because of travel bans or of you know, vaccines that weren't um, accepted in, in our country or in our school, visas, all sorts of other, or people didn't feel safe, maybe faculty who had moved away from New York City, that there were going to be hybrid situations that we needed to be prepared for. And so, you know, I hit Google pretty hard and I really could not find the article to teach me how to do this or how it might be difficult. And so I began this, you know, odyssey of research, talking to people really in many different countries, people who uh, had worked with college level, high school, elementary school teachers. They were actually the most helpful of all and essentially put together the article that I wish that I could have found 
And its angle is how to do this with essentially no money. Schools, you know, don't have money. I mean, most schools, most educators. And so the idea of buying fancy teleconferencing equipment, not that there are actually a lot of options out there, is just pretty much out of the question. So I think the article's name is like how to teach hybrid in the fall with almost no money. There are some solutions uh, that you could start with if you had some money, but most schools don't. And so it's a very a homebrew kind of approach to stay on Zoom. This is how to tackle the video problems and audio problems are the most challenging at all. But I do say, Terry, in the article at the beginning, you actually you know don't want to do this. The conventional wisdom or the learned wisdom really is to have two different sections, to have your online students in one section and your in-class students in one section and don't try and do them what we referred to as hybrid concurrent. The actual pedagogical challenges of teaching roomies and zoomies at the same time are the really big problem that it's not technological at all. I confined this work to the technology setup. It's like if you have to do this, if your school gives you no choice or you don't have enough students or enough faculty to split sections and you have to do this, how do you just get it up and working with no money so that you can even start learning about some of the pedagogical challenges um, and techniques from the people that I talk to? Those are actually the biggest problems of all. Once you can sort of see and hear everybody, what do you actually do with them in a concurrent format? We had faculty last year who just frankly knocked it out of the park. Um, and so we are going to have some remote teachers this year, you know, who don't live in New York City and are amazing at teaching at a distance. I was looking at some of your students' thesis presentations, mm. and I was especially struck by a number of them. One that actually won the Fast Company's World Changing Awards. It was a mm -hmm. redesigned rape kit. What made that such good design? This is one of our incredible alumni, Andrea Wegeman, she has won a lot of accolades. You know, we do actually a lot of work around girls and women and menstrual health and maternal health. And we're really proud that we have a lot of these feminist topics in our pedagogy explicitly and, and certainly showing up in our thesis. This was one of those things, back to your original question, that is so much a design question but it shows up in every single everything. So for instance, the sexual assault nurse examiners, the SANE nurses will be one of the first stops where a woman who's been uh, sexually assaulted will show up. There's a kind of training that that nurse um, has a kind of experience that they may have. And the rape kit itself you know, can have over 30 parts to it not all of which are applicable to each incident of assault. There are incredible human-doctor-patient relationships that are very, very delicate. A lot of questions around privacy, and I'm sorry to say shame, and all of these really, really complex human dynamics that are happening in that room. Even if you're able to get the rape kit completed um, and the specimens and evidence that you need, that kit then goes into really like a police system. That kit like sits on a shelf. Most of these never really find their way to court, um, these cases, and there are very few convictions when they do. You've got like product design, you've got service design, you've got a lot of medical design, You've actually got criminality and different kinds of forces involved. There's politics. 
there's policy, there's regulatory, there's legal, right? Like in, in effect, you're putting together a legal package. So there's a chain of custody. Who gets to touch this kit? How do we authenticate that these are the actual specimens and that every touch point, designers would call them in a user journey, is just a design I wouldn't call it a disaster, but probably, you know, designers in this area would call it a disaster beyond challenging. So for Antia to take on this topic in her thesis required her to look at this topic from every, and again, here's another design term, stakeholders in this enormous user journey, this enormous system of, you know, what is sexual assault um, and how does product design play a role in justice? What does it take to persuade your students when they're coming into the program to think way outside the box in terms of what they thought design was? Also, another lovely question. Well, I mean, frankly, the pedagogy. We teach systems design from the very beginning. We, I mean, our first course is called Systems Scale and Consequence. Um, that really talks about uh, the vastness, uh, the multidimensionality of every single challenge that we have in the world. You know, everything is made of people. Everything is made of politics. Everything is made of policy and prejudice. And all of these things wrap themselves up in designed systems that may not be typically seen as design, but they are entirely designed. And that means that they can be in some sense redesigned. Designers are optimists. It's hard to scare them off. You know, one could argue that pull the corner of the rug of anything on planet earth right now. And it is just really fundamentally broken. I mean, that's one of the things that the pandemic is doing is revealing just how broken every single system is. Uh, designers are not surprised. We always knew this. It just become plainer. And so the hope is that the last thing that we'll do as a society or as a, as a civilization will go back to the way things were. And designers play a really clear role in this, where if we are going to reimagine our cities, if we're going to reimagine our food supply chains, if we're going to manage care, community, health, education, they need to be, in some sense, figured out. Uh, and that we can't figure them out with the tools and, frankly, by the participants that figure them out the first time. And so these become incredibly uh, inviting, even delicious design context for people who want to make a difference to make a difference. Is there a repeatable process for actually how to do this? Yes, there is. Um, it's called design. Um, and in putting this program together, if you look over the course offerings, together we feel that they, in a short two-year master's program, will equip you with the skills and the vocabulary, but mostly the confidence to say yes to something that probably might not be able to be done. Designers say yes first. We, we're a sort of an odd bunch. We think that there's a better way to do everything. Uh, there's a weird sort of arrogance to it. There is sort of an irony to the fact that you'd actually want a designer to work on your project who had never done that before. If you were designing a new recording studio, um, you might bring a designer in who's never designed a recording studio before because they wouldn't know all the things that they can't do. Um, and working together with an engineer, for instance, a sound engineer, an acoustician, then they probably come up with something that no studio designer would come up with. So designers call this fresh eyes and they're super valuable, but they make a profession or a future in design 
very enjoyable because you're kind of always working on something or often working on something you've never worked on before. There's a clear joy in there uh, and, and a built-in advantage, I would say, I would argue. Where do your students find work upon leaving your program? Um, also a nice question. Well, you know, the program is new. We're just in our 10th year now. So it's only now that we can actually look back and see like, you know, what did this make? Um, so certainly, you know, one of the things it makes is entrepreneurs, people like Anja um, or Sovet Paul, who started his thesis um, around limb loss, limb difference. He is working on a catheter uh, sterilization product. So people come out and make their, typically their thesis project, the next part of their life. I actually did this. I did my uh, master's that I said in 86 and 87 at Pratt. And I was really interested in medical design. I did my thesis on HIV and AIDS and what's called phlebotomy, which is laboratory blood collection, and ultimately got a job working in medical design, designing surgical instruments and diagnostic equipment. And there's some entrepreneurs. Um, we have people who go into design consulting. There are obviously lots of design firms, some of the most famous being Frog and IDEO and we have lots of students who will go that route and then um, are really now, in some sense, leaving those jobs and starting their own things. And then people who go into the social sector, social innovation design, who will be interested in policy, in government, people who are interested in behavioral economics. We also have a lot of people who want to be teachers. And of course, that's really dear to my heart. You know, I have to say growing up in Winnipeg uh, was so formative for me. You know, the teachers that I had, University of Winnipeg Collegiate, taught me how to treat people like grownups uh, and not like kids. That really stuck with me. I went to University of Manitoba. Um, I went to, into fine arts, but really changed to philosophy after two weeks. I have said that design is philosophy with your hands because, you know, you're, you're looking at, you know, impossible problems, right? If they're not impossible, they're not still on the philosophy syllabus. You're looking at lateral thinking, creative thinking, innovation, induction, deduction, all of the things like precisely that designers do. Uh, you know, I was looking back at some of my teachers in anticipation um, of this interview, and I was thinking about, you know, two of my philosophy teachers um, who I looked up at U of M and they're still there, um, Arthur Schaefer and Michael Stack. So formative, and not only me as a designer, as a person, but in how I am as a chair working with faculty. You know, a lot of my work now is helping teachers become better teachers. And I remember both um, philosophy courses, Arthur Schaefer's class, you know, really an introduction in philosophy, you know, the problem of good and evil and God and omnipotence and freedom and determinism and all of these really like foundational things. You know, I'm just so proud of growing up in Winnipeg and I'm just so appreciative for some of these experiences. And I was also thinking, I went to Grant Park in high school. There was this art teacher named Mr. Shoup. And, you know, the art teachers are always like, you know, the weird teachers. He was just so important to me. Again, in terms of like rule breaking, he treated every student as a grown-up, never talked down to us, and actually didn't talk too much. He listened, mostly. And that is a very, very hard thing to do for all of us, to listen more than we speak. And that really stuck with me, both in terms of how I wanted to live my life as a person, but how I wanted to work with students and teachers in the world of education in introducing you, I, I mentioned that you're also a partner and editor at large at, at Core 77. Uh, how mm -hmm. do you describe Core 77? What is it? 
it was actually the very first online design community on the internet. It was born um, in 1995, the second year of the World Wide Web, roughly. Uh, there are very few websites that are still in existence and thriving uh, 25 years later. It serves a core audience of industrial design, um, but we also have a job and portfolio sister site, a design firm sister site. We run uh, a really popular annual design awards program across all design disciplines. Uh, and that's annual, uh, put on events, we have webinars, you know, it, it kind of has an origin story uh, from my partners, Stu and Eric, like I did for that article, you know, that I tried to, you know, write the article that I couldn't find. People have, <laughs> accused, people have accused me of creating a master's program that I wish I went to, you know, and I'm like, yeah, kind of busted, right? And Stu and Eric, my uh, the founding partners, of course, 77, created a website that they wished existed when they were looking for graduate programs um, back in 1993. It's interesting that design people kind of invent the thing that they wish they had. And then if it resonates with broader than themselves, then that's wonderful. You know, in terms of what is the definition of design, we do think of ourselves as in the service of others. Um, and that we have a set of skills and obsessions uh, and habits and hopefully some fluencies that will enable us to serve, you know, lots of other people who don't understand or may not have access to the, the tools, the power and the scale that, that design has um, and come up with offerings as opposed to interventions, which is another word that designers like to use. I, I like offerings. I think that sometimes it needs to be soft like that um, and that people uh, need to be participants I don't think it's too inside baseball to remark here that, you know, we're in, in a transformation of a kind of design process enlightenment where we really moved from design for, that you design for somebody, uh, you sort of helicopter in, you know, watch how they brush their teeth for six weeks and then design a new toothbrush, which I actually have, have done in my past, to designing with where you are actually working with, and there isn't a better word for this, I'm afraid, but with your users, really now informed by notions around community and justice and local, which is designed by, um, which is a kind of authorship where the equity, the design learnings, the design outcomes, the design businesses or platforms or apps, the equity and the knowledge in those is shared amongst all its participants, not just to the designers. And I like this very much because in the, in the beginning, when I created this MFA program, uh, you know, I thought it was a little risky to say, but authentic that, you know, we can turn a good designer into a great designer in this department. Yes, we can do that. But I'm really, you know, just as interested in taking people who aren't designers, but ought to be designers. I want to get people into the world of design as opposed to making them designers. I'm happy, it, it warms my heart that that's consistent with where the sort of zeitgeist of the design profession is going now, where it is back to people who aren't, you know, quote, credentialed designers, but have enormous, enormous local knowledge, practice, custom point of view that can inform what's next in a way that no sort of, you know, scientist, designer, researcher, interventionalist could ever come close to. And I'm waving my hands around. I know it's audio, but I know you can see me when we're recording this. And, and I'm making it physical because it is big as physical. It is way beyond the head and the, and the intellect. It really is about, you know, the heart and about respect.
And I love that this is where design as a, as a practice explicitly is moving. So as big as the problems we're facing in the world seem, I don't know if there's any other way to sort of go about them, to address them other than through the design perspective. And so I think about design as a kind of fourth force. Design isn't sort of in that category of change making, um, but that it ought to be. I'm kind of critical of design and design practice, but I'm also probably, you know, one of its biggest cheerleaders at the same time. I was looking at some of the designs, though, highlighted on Core 77, mm-hmm. many of which were fascinating. This thing called the Attune Model Y, which is a minimal exoskeleton for helping workers carry heavy loads. I saw that, actually. Wow. I thought that was a really brilliant idea. Yeah. I mean, ingenuity is just, it just really tickles one's fancy. You know, you see like an invention I remember when I was younger, I thought inventing was sort of, you know, not a profession. And when I found industrial design, I was just like, oh my goodness, this is like crazy inventors who actually get paid for it, like hired and paid, and that there is a repeatable methodology to doing this. What about the Gita Mini, the cargo carrying robot that looks a bit like R2-D2? This is a little robot that follows you around, connected to your phone. And you Uh can put put your groceries in it or anything else you want to carry. And then it folds up. It's light enough that you can lift it up and put it on the bus or Uh, put it in your car. This is the kind of product that is fun to write about. Is it a product that we need? It certainly doesn't build muscles um, or balance. It's certainly not affordable by most people. It's made of plastic. So there's going to be a carbon extraction cost in the materiality, the supply chain, the labor practices. I mean, a lot of these products are speculative and may, may not be so real. They may be prototypes, but they're really fun to like look at. You know, one of the most exciting flavors of design is called speculative design. Uh, it can also be called critical design or discursive design. And this may actually be the most fascinating piece of design or flavor of design of all, where you're creating products that actually look real uh, as a kind of futuring exercise so that people can actually look at them and say, well, is this the world that we want to live in? Is this the world that we want to build? But in design education, um, having students work through speculative design, strategic foresight, futuring is extraordinarily powerful and honestly a requirement right now. Because again, we are in such trouble in every way that unless we have creative people, in this case, in the form of designers, conjuring images of not dystopia. Uh, So many people have commented that we have designers and art directors and cinematographers who are absolutely brilliant at imaging the end of the world, right? Let's take Hollywood or science fiction uh, writers or like expert at conjuring this but that people don't spend enough time in their profession. Maybe there isn't even a profession for conjuring, not utopias, but in in some sense, futures where we are thriving, you know, not just sustainable futures, but actually positive futures, net positive futures. So futuring sort of codifies or, or makes functional the exercise of creating pieces of design that look real, that aren't real, but their intention is discursive. They're there 
to provoke a discussion about what's next. And because the design tools of creation are so extraordinarily powerful and a lot open sourced and accessible, you don't have to go to a master's program to do speculative design. This is a really bright spot in how do we actually address um, our challenges? Well, we need to image what the future might look like if we get it right, not if we get it wrong. One of the reasons why the world of design is such a hopeful place is because we can actually do something beyond fretting. We can get smart about it. We can do research. We can talk to communities and we can, again, conjure these speculative futures so that you actually can have a meeting, right? Even though I'm against meetings about that future, that you're not just talking about like, oh, everything's going wrong. What do we do? No, that won't work. No, that won't work. No, we can never afford this. No, the politicians won't say yes to this. No, they'll be out of power in three more years. You know, these meetings end pretty quick and they're pretty dispiriting. Bring designers into that meeting to actually show you stuff, to actually create stuff. It's a much better meeting. Uh, We'll call it a review. I was about to ask you a final question, which was going to be, so where does your optimism come from? But you just answered that. I can hear it in you. And that seems to me to be a little motor that runs inside you that allows you to be optimistic because of what you're able to do and the kind of creativity that you're able to foster. You know, I would not consider myself an optimist out of the box, but designers just kind of are like, maybe they need to be, or maybe it draws. So maybe because of the world that I've chosen, that solves that dilemma for me. And and you put a nice underline on it for me. Thank you. Thanks so much for taking so much time to talk to us and for reconnecting with all of us back here in Winnipeg. Oh, what an honor it's been. Yeah, I haven't visited in several years and really have lots of friends still there and just can't wait to get back. Thank you so much for being part of Prairie Design Lab and putting the design into the center of Prairie Design Lab. Alan Chachanov, it's been a real pleasure here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been great. Alan Chachanov is the chair and co-founder of the Master of Fine Arts in the Products of Design program at New York's School of Visual Arts. And he's also a partner and editor-at-large of Core 77. He joined us from New York City. If you'd like to hear a deeper conversation with Alan Chachanoff, you can listen to Prairie Design Lab on Spotify and on Apple and Google Podcasts, where we have an unedited version of the conversation. I want to say a special thanks to our supporting team from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba, Jason Chan, Jason Shields, and Brandy O'Reilly. You can also hear us on the radio in southern Manitoba on UMFM at 101.5 FM on Wednesday mornings at 11.30. I'm Terry McLeod. Thanks for listening to Prairie Design Lab. Talk to you next week. <laughs>